This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with epidemiologist and World Health Organization advisor, Professor Mary Louise McLaws. Mary Louise joined me to take us through everything we need to know about the Omicron variant, the current COVID-19 outbreaks in Victoria and New South Wales, plus how we can best stay safe over the summer holiday period. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense. My name is Amy Mullins. I'm here for the next hour and a half, uh, approximately, up until noon today. This show is Uncommon Sense, and I'm currently joined by Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She has become a regular feature on this program, and we've been absolutely very blessed to have her input and her expert advice throughout this pandemic, certainly Um, We've had many in-depth discussions about different developments, including the UK variant, as it was kind of known at the time, and then into Delta and now into Omicron, of course, having popped up in the last few weeks to month. And Mary Louise is an epidemiologist. She's based at the University of New South Wales, and she's a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And as I was saying, Mary Louise is many people's favourite epidemiologist, as they've told me, um, and they didn't think that was a thing that would happen, but they're very excited about the fact that she's here with us today, as am I. So I welcome Mary Louise and say that you have a huge fan base out there, and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for those kind words. Um, I'm um, amazed at uh, the public and how they understand what epidemiologists do. And um, now, because, you know, once upon a time, we're all fairly introverted and, uh, and work behind the scenes. Uh, but sadly, this pandemic has brought epidemiologists with all sorts of wonderful expertise. You know, there are some that have expertise in global health and clinical care, et cetera. And gosh, they're doing a great job out there, um, you know, talking to the public. Mm, yeah, it does actually remind me, Adrian Esterman has been doing some great daily tweeting about the ref numbers in different states as well and keeping people updated. So there's lots of different ways that if epidemiologists in Australia are reaching the masses, not just radio, but through social mm-hmm. media as well. Absolutely. They, um, you know, they've all got different expertise and Adrian's expertise is certainly, you know, the maths and the statistics behind things. And, uh, you know, he's done some modelling on that or, you know, calculations. Uh, You can be pretty sure uh, that it will be spot on. Yeah, and it certainly has been in the past uh, when he's been modelling, for example, the Sydney Delta outbreak and looking at that. And, you know, that was something we were discussing only somewhat recently and also looking at, you know, the vaccination targets and these kind of things. But we have seen a new spanner in the works in this pandemic, and that is the Omicron variant. And it is notable to say that this is not a surprise to virologists and epidemiologists and public health experts because coronaviruses do evolve and certainly if you see high levels of community transmission in an unvaccinated population um, you are likely to see new variants emerge. So 
having Omicron arrive on the scene and with its various different mutations being different from Delta, um, you know, this is not something that we should be potentially shocked about. Uh, it is something that we would like to prevent, no doubt, is further variants emerging that become fitter and better at evading vaccination. So I wanted to go through, I guess, the the profile, the scientific profile of Omicron as we understand it right now and what some of the, the early science is telling us about it. And I know that you've been dialing into regular meetings of the World Health Organization about these issues. So I wonder if we could tackle some of the burning questions that we've got. First of all, the kind of obvious one, which is we've seen cases tick up across the world just really quickly, and the doubling rate seems to be shorter in days for Omicron. So I wonder, do we know about just how infectious and transmissible the Omicron variant is at the moment, and is it worse and more infectious than Delta? Well, um, let me take you back uh, to uh, South Africa. So in South Africa, in um, from about August last year to around May this year, most of the infections were found to be uh, beta. And then all of a sudden, Delta took over in June this year in South Africa. And that was the case with a little bit of beta behind the scenes. And then in um, November, they, they saw an incredible takeover of a, a variant that was under um, um, investigation. And when the numbers went up so high, uh, they immediately talked to WHO, who then re-examined whether they could still call it variant under interest and decided that it had changed enough to make it a variant of concern. Uh, the South Africans the next day talked to the public and showed what they had already learnt. So they had learnt that, of course, um, uh, uh, over 10 areas in South Africa, there were um, uh, Omicron uh, cases that were leading the way. So they then uh, started to... Um, look at how fast Delta was taking over. And they shared that with the rest of the world. And, and they reminded us that there were only 24% of their population had been fully vaccinated. Testing rate levels were low, but they were really very much concerned. And um, they their virologists were doing amazing work and had already found that 24% uh, up to 24 to 37% um, of um, uh, daily growth advantage of the um, virus uh, showed that um, Omicron was more likely to cause um, faster infection uh, rates than had ever seen before. So we we started learning that, and then, of course, um, we started to see evidence from uh, the, um, the UK uh, showing that, of course, um, uh, Delta was more, we uh, used to be more likely to cause um, uh, household infections, but now Omicron took over and they were uh, twice as likely to cause household infections. Uh, and um, uh, 
more likely to cause non-household infections as well. So we were learning an awful lot both from South Africa and the UK because, you know, the UK took over uh, having more Omicron than, than South Africa. Now, that could be because the UK were very good at um, testing. Uh, so the public would come and get tested and they, were, they actually used rapid antigen tests um, that you know I've been calling for for a year, and then finally they got um, approved. Uh, but I'd love them to be free. Mm. And the reason that I think that the UK learned so much so fast uh, that they had so much Omicron was because they were doing uh, so much um, testing of the community, um, and then the community would uh, then go and get a PCR test. So. Um, uh, it's more infectious. It has um, a, um, an advantage of infecting um, more rapidly. And then there was, of course, the idea that it um, could uh, get around your immune system and potentially um, cause more reinfection. However, I'm not sure that that's the case because I think that that original um, idea was around uh, South Africa. And I think what was happening in South Africa is that people certainly had a lot of um, a pre-infection with the different strains and their antibodies were waning. So they got another infection. So I'm not so sure that Omicron is better at um, causing reinfection or it just takes advantage of the waning of antibodies. Mm. And obviously that that's a key point to be making and a key point to be considering is how um, fast these natural antibodies that our body is producing to an infection last. And obviously for um, a virus that's evolving like this and like many other coronaviruses, we can't necessarily rely on our natural antibodies providing you know, a, a very prolonged uh, effect. And obviously, I've certainly seen many reports over Twitter in places that have had high levels of community transmission, like America and the UK, with people saying, you know, that they've definitely had COVID uh, at least twice this year in some cases. And some people have been, you know, double vaccinated, which means that um, it's not to say that vaccines don't work. They absolutely work at reducing the severity of infection and death. But we are dealing with something that's not as simple as um, some of the other diseases that we can vaccinate effectively against that aren't evolving and changing like this one is. So it is very you know, difficult to ensure that the nuance is captured, but you always do do that, Mary Louise. Um, talking about the severity of disease, which is another thing that's certainly been raised. And it's been something that people have been using as a bit of a caveat with Omicron and also a reason as to why we might relax things a bit and be okay with higher levels of community transmission. We've heard the Queensland Chief Health Officer say that it's necessary for uh, the Omicron variant to spread and to have uh, levels of community transmission that are much higher. And this is because some people have said 
uh, early on, and it's it was certainly um, only applying to a very small cohort of people. This observation, and it, they were quite fit and healthy younger people, was that perhaps Omicron was a milder variant to Delta. Mm-hmm. We have seen a study from the Imperial College in the UK say that that isn't the case. So we are seeing science come out at the moment to contradict that early um, kind of anecdotal assessment. And I wanted to to get your thoughts, given that you're across all of this emerging information and the emerging studies, and do we actually have any firm understanding of what level of severity Omicron is in comparison to the Delta variant? Well, I have to say I was gobsmacked when I heard um, those um, statements uh, that this is mild because um, it shows a lack of appreciation for the fact that the majority of Omicron, Delta, Beta, Alpha, um, you know, the wild strain, was always in young adults. Uh, Why? Because young adults uh, do what they're supposed to do, socialise and work a lot, and they have more contacts. So even before Delta, in Australia and before children could get infected, um, 41% of cases were carried by the 20 to 39-year-olds, the biggest proportion ever. And then with Delta, we saw all of a sudden under 40s, 70%, sometimes about 68, somewhere between 68 and 70% across both Victoria and New South Wales, the, um, the, the, that proportion was suffered by those under 40. And what I find just um, unbelievable uh, in Australia and the rest of the world is the idea of um, uh, rolling out vaccines according to the elderly. And we all love the elderly. We all want to make sure they're fine. But the elderly need to be protected from the young ones and the young ones need to be protected. And one of the epidemiological approaches to rolling out vaccine and boosters should have been let's protect the young adults first because they're the ones that get it, suffer it on all different levels of severity and spread it. Now, at the moment um, in South Africa, 58% of cases are between 20 and 39 If you add the cases between zero and 19 years of age, that's up to 69% of the population. So again, the young are suffering from Omicron more than any other age group. And um, when you look at it across the world, at the moment, that's about 35%. But that last time I looked at at those those proportions was before all of a sudden the UK had a huge increase in cases. Then it was covered, uh, uh, followed by uh, Denmark and Norway and uh, Canada. So I think they're just a bit slow to give the world uh, their breakdown of of, um, age groups. But my point is, is that when you start getting a large number of cases, then we start to see the elderly, the middle-aged and the elderly get it, and then, of course, the difference in severity. So um, we will probably still see that as well, that um, most young people won't be hospitalised, and then the middle-aged and the elderly will be at more risk of death. But I'll just remind you about what the definition is 
of a mild case because this is really important. So for in an adult, it's a cough, upper respiratory attack symptoms such as sore throat, nausea, loss of appetite, um, vomiting, um, loss of smell and taste, headaches, body aches, and the same sort of thing for kids. Now, that can be considered asymptomatic or mild. So, um, you know, not everybody would consider that mild. They probably think that they felt like they were hit by a mini minor. And then, of course, the moderate infections have been described to me as feeling as if they were hit by a bus or a truck. And that includes a fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea, chest pain, um, not taking in enough fluids, feeling dizzy when they stand up, etc. And so, really, um, we need to be um, told more by the authorities what uh, type of um, level of illness the young adults are feeling because they're the majority of cases and then also the 40 and overs because that might help us understand what to expect but also I think we can be we're sometimes a bit cavalier about who we choose not to put in hospital and who we do and uh, you know we hadn't put in anyone from the residential aged care facility and they had a hospital in the home care and basically their death rate covered about 75% of all deaths at that time so it was just amoral and I think that we should be understanding that the death rate at that time in the elderly with something like you catch COVID in your elderly, you 30% will die. So we really do need to get our health systems ready to take in the elderly. We don't want them to die sooner um, than they should. And also put the young ones in as well who don't have anybody to look after them. Because we in New South Wales have seen with Delta, people die that we weren't expecting. And, you know, you can have a rapid onset of complications without even realising it. So I do think that we need to work towards getting the death rates down. And when I did the death rates for New South Wales and I was plotting them, you know, every 10,000 cases, overall we in New South Wales have had a death rate of about 13 per 1,000 cases. And in Victoria it's about five. And we in New South Wales have um, a delay of about 10 to 14 days in um, peak of hospitalisation from peak of case numbers. So that tells me that we're potentially taking too long to put people in hospital um, or it's taking longer for the elderly to get sick to then get to hospital. But I do think that we need to be, have more uh, either home visits by um, community nurses to ensure that people that have got supposedly mild or moderate infections are being looked after to really keep that death rate down, given Omicron is so much more infectious and our um, natural, you know, neutralising antibodies are waning so fast that I've estimated that you know, nearly 65 to 70% of people will be at risk of Omicron. 
Yeah, and it certainly is a great thing to point out, which is that the hospitalisation rate, which uh, politicians have been going on about, and obviously the ICU admissions as well, that is one metric. But as you say, thousands of people are being uh, considered as being under the care of hospital in the home in New South Wales, even uh, here in Victoria. Um, some people have been giving been given pulse oximeters to monitor their own blood oxygen levels because, as you say, things deteriorate very rapidly and they're not aware that they've dropped, you know, down into levels that are dangerous territory. Um, so this is something that is very tenuous. We did see in the last Delta outbreak that many people did actually die at home and many people were diagnosed even with COVID after death. So this is something naturally that we would want to avoid. Um, but one of the other things we'd also want to avoid and something we've discussed on this show is the incidence of long COVID because, as we know, the more cases there are that are positive in the community, the more chance there is that there'll be people getting long COVID. This is a major issue in places like the UK and the US, and we've seen uh, virus modellers from the University College in London warning that there'll be a protracted wave of long COVID and that they're estimating that there'll be new long COVID cases getting up to 862 a day by Christmas. So when things go out of control in, in places like the UK, we see this huge wave of people having short to medium to even long-term disabilities. And these are people who would not normally have been affected um, and would not normally have had an ongoing health issue that they now have to manage and potentially can't work, can't function normally. So I wanted to bring that in because it's a factor that is not brought up very rarely, certainly in Australia, um, in our public conversations, both at the political level, but even at this public debate between some modelers and epidemiologists um, advocating this idea of a natural herd immunity and that we should just uh, let things, you know, take its course, live alongside the virus, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what about long COVID, Mary Louise? And I wonder if you can shed some light on that. Well, it's certainly why I detest the uh, term living with COVID because um, who gets long COVID is very unpredictable. Now, there was a study done uh, on uh, 250,000 survivors uh, and um, it's across uh, multiple um, uh, studies and they found some really very, very fascinating things. For example... Uh, the main issues, uh, factors with long COVID is mental health. So, you know, in Australia, we've been in lockdown and you don't want to give up um, all of the gains that we've um, uh, achieved through lockdown. And me mental health, sadly, uh, was one of those um, disadvantages of it. Well, uh, so we worry about that. But then people who've had COVID are more likely to get mental health issues because it's a classic post-viral uh, um, response. Uh, that feeling of anxiety and depression had been identified with influenza uh, long ago. And then, of course, there was, you know, um, ideas of um, chronic fatigue syndrome that some infectious disease physicians thought which was just a mental health issue and not post-infection. Well, in fact, it is post-infection commonly. But one of the interesting findings in this review 
is that um, compared to, say, influenza, anxiety, for example, is more common in uh, um, post-COVID than post-influenza. So about 20% of people who've had influenza get um, post-anxiety and depression. Well, 27% uh, of people who get um, uh, long COVID suffer from that as well. And then the other issues are, of course, pulmonary, neurological issues, um, uh, fatigue, uh, you know, one of the um, um, unpredictable fatigues. You get up in the morning, mentally feel okay, and then all of a sudden feel exhausted and you've got to go back to bed. Um, muscle pain um, and headaches. And then a group looked at at this um, and found that, in fact, long COVID, all of these factors don't start immediately in even the first 90 days. It can take up to 180 days or between 90 and 180 days. And for some of these long COVID uh, features, they can occur fairly immediately or later. So, for example, anxiety and depression, the proportion that acquire it early between the first day and, and day 90 is similar to the proportion that acquire it uh, or notice it uh, from 91 days to 180. But the biggest proportion uh, is between um, uh, that longer time up to 180 days. So I think that the authorities and the public are going to learn an awful lot about long COVID and this um, nonsensical uh, statement of learning to live with it. No, we should try to prevent it as much as possible so we don't have a huge proportion of people who may have had COVID very mildly, not got diagnosed. So what we think we've got out in the community could be even higher. And what we will see with people with cognition problems and anxiety and even, sadly, suicide ideation may be shocking. And one of the other things that this particular um, study found was that a feature of long COVID is often a multiple of features, you know, such as things like um, chest pain, abdominal breathing, abdominal symptoms and fatigue. So uh, you don't just get one, you get multiples of them. And then the study then looked at, well, who's more likely? And so males are more likely than females. Uh, Those who are over 45 are more likely, but it doesn't stop the young ones from acquiring, uh, from from having long COVID. Um, Those who were hospitalised were more likely than non-hospitalised. But what I'm concerned about that finding is that um, we haven't followed the non-hospitalised cases uh, often enough to be able to see whether that was uh, what we call selection bias. We have more people who went to hospital, therefore we find that they're more um, uh, likely to get um, long COVID. And um, and so uh, we're learning an awful lot. And can I please ask your listeners, you know, when you see people wearing a mask under their nose, what they fail to understand is, is that they could be breathing out COVID through their nose, but they could be breathing it in. And, you know, there's a blood-brain barrier and it's not very good at, it's not perfect at keeping viruses out. You know, we've got um, 
you know, uh, men, uh, meningitis in yeah. the brain when you breathe it up. So please put that mask over your nose so it doesn't go straight to the brain and, uh, you know, impair your neurons and that um, circular, uh, circulation of, of, of um, information that goes, you know, uh, via, you know, your, your neurons. And if they're in, we don't know, uh, of course, you know, um, experts are looking at this about whether or not it's infected neurons that are in causing the brain functioning or whether it's um, the immune system uh, over responding to this. So they'll find a lot about this and they'll and they'll get back to us eventually. Um, but certainly they're concerned about uh, neuroinflammation, uh, coagulation, you know, in other words, clots, um, and depletion, particularly of that neurotransmitters uh, that that remind us why we walked into another room and what we wanted to do. And sadly, hypoxic injury. In other words, um, you know, fog brain where uh, your brain isn't working as well as it could have. Yeah, it's really very concerning. And I know anyone who's experienced a post-viral illness or disability ongoing would have certainly been affected as you say, physically through all those different symptoms, including dysautonomia and postural tachycardia, which many people are also reporting with long COVID, but also the health, mental health effects of realising that they are not the person they were before this virus and that it may continue. So this is not something we necessarily want anyone to have in Australia. And that's why I'm quite gobsmacked similarly about this idea that we should live alongside the virus. Now we're seeing um, discussions about normalising the virus, quote unquote, here in Victoria from our Premier. We've got um, the Prime Minister saying that people can just choose to stay at home if they like. Well, immunocompromised people have already had to do that and will have to keep doing that, unfortunately, because of Omicron. And but also I think because we've wound back so many of the public health measures that we did have because p politicians had come out to say vaccinations are our ticket out of the pandemic. Well, we've heard epidemiologists and scientists say that that's not the case, that it's a vaccines plus strategy that's required here in Australia but also overseas. Now, Mary Louise, just to close out this chat, Looking overseas right now, we've got um, the Netherlands going into lockdown, Denmark bringing in restrictions, the UK considering a circuit breaker lockdown at some point, potentially after Christmas. Uh, the US is seeing cases run rampant. We're seeing the CDC say that 73% of new cases are from the Omicron variant. And here in Australia, politicians are saying, well, it's summer, we're not in a, a European winter right now, uh, we're you know, going to give everyone their supposed freedoms that they've worked hard for and gone and got a vaccination for. And it's become quite a transactional type situation. Um, if we go out and get vaccinated, we go and get to do whatever we like. Um, in New South Wales, there's now not a mask mandate. QR check-ins are not required. And there are um, virtually no density or crowd limits in New South Wales and uh, very few here in Victoria, if at all. So I wonder, from a pandemic response perspective, and from your perspective, uh, looking at what's been happening even overnight here with the AHPPC, um, what do you think is required? Um, the, the World Health Organization Director General has said vaccines are not the only thing and they can't be. What should Australia be doing? And certainly 
very much uh, looking at New South Wales and Victoria as an example. What should we be doing um, and, and are we doing enough? And uh, obviously through the prism of this um, ridiculous phrase, personal responsibility. Well, one of the problems is uh, that we're always compared to the Northern Hemisphere for their winter and their winter and people going indoors is always blamed for increase in transmission. However, Australians have an increase in transmission in the summertime because that's where we get together with people. We have family and friends over for Christmas. Uh, we socialise and we don't always do it outside. And also Australians don't keep a large social distance, uh, that physical distance between people. We're, we're huggers, we're, we're, we're kisses, we're, you know, um, we don't just all um, do our elbow bumping uh, that, you know, is not who we are as, as a nation where, you know, 42% of us were born overseas or had parents born overseas. So we come from multiple cultures where keeping a physical distance isn't what we do. So we do need to understand that um, this time of year is the same as uh, winter overseas in increasing the risk of spread. And what we should have done is not just focus on the level of vaccination to reduce, um, uh, you know, the, the restrictions and lift them, but to actually then say, well, is, circul is circulating virus high? Has it changed? Because if it is, we're going to keep the restrictions even though the vaccination's high as well. And so what they should have done was to have a look at understanding what happened in Israel with their waning antibodies, then quickly looking at the UK and what they were experiencing, rapid increase. Uh, and in fact, the UK is now, you know, the, sadly, the place um, for um, Omicron with uh, something like uh, uh, nearly 11,000 cases. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, there's Denmark, et cetera, as well. So, um, oh, in fact, um, I think that was 11,000 cases they gave for testing. Um, so anyway, it's, I think it's up to something like 45,000 actual cases. Um, so what we should be then realising is that our vaccination rate isn't homogeneous. So while, for example, Australia may have reached uh, for the 12 plus about, you know, what, 89, 90%, uh, that isn't always the case across each one of the age groups. So the 12 to 15 aren't covered enough. And, uh, and that means that we've got about, I don't know, 25% of the, of the population in general uh, being at risk and anybody who had been given AstraZeneca at risk as well. So we need to tell people, um, plan to um, do all your entertaining outside wherever possible. Um, if you want to cancel going to a restaurant, don't cancel. Instead, um, go home, have your friends at home and have um, uh, delivery um, dinner and enjoy your friends. They hopefully have been um, double vaccinated. If they haven't, get them to do a rapid antigen test before they come over, and you do one as well. And it can become part of a, I love you, I care for you, you're my besties, and I want to keep you safe. 
and then wear a mask when you go shopping. And that way, it's not going to be perfect, but it's certainly going to reduce the spread. Absolutely. And uh, I just draw attention to your last tweet where you say just 30 to 35% of Australians have symptomatic protection from Omicron based on a UK study and Australian data. So we need to make sure that those who are eligible for boosters also go and get their booster vaccination. And um, that's just one component, as you say, of a much broader public health response that we need to do, not just at the government level, but also over Christmas, where we can, um, you know, protecting each other and showing care for each other. Thank you so much, Mary Louise, for joining us today. I know you have to run off to a meeting, so I appreciate your time and I really hope you have a great uh, holiday and also a really safe one. Well, it's always lovely to be invited to your show. And please, um, you and everyone, uh, stay safe, enjoy Christmas and get that booster. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much, Mary Louise. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.